I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a salesman. A salesman. And in our little make-believe scenario, you just happen to have the toughest sales job on the planet. You're a salesman with the toughest sales job on the planet because you know, you know that the secret to sales is supply and demand, right? Supply and demand. You've got to sell what people want. You've got to have what people need, which would consequently mean that the toughest sales job would be all supply, no demand. You have something to sell, but it's irrelevant to your clientele. You with me? So, for instance, here's some examples of the toughest sales job on the planet. Imagine trying to sell books to the blind. Books to the blind. Unless they're Braille books, these are not not going to sell well. Number two, cosmetics to nuns. Makeup to nuns. Last I checked, they're not really into fashion, so this is, this is not going to go well for you. Number three, ice blocks to Eskimos. I don't know, I heard that somewhere. This is not going to go well. They, they have their own ice blocks. Right? They, they don't need yours. Number four, diet pills to sumo wrestlers. They're not in the market to lose weight, but to gain weight. They're, they're not interested in, in diet pills. So try as you may, they don't want those things. Right? The, the, the supply far outweighs the demand. In fact, there is no demand. Nobody wants what you're selling because those things are irrelevant to your clientele. What am I doing? This is ridiculous. Well, the point is, is that all supply, no demand is a little bit how people in the church feel about Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. You see, ice blocks to Eskimos, cosmetics to nuns, it's all supply, no demand. As a pastor, it's a really tough gig to convince a church that they need these 11 chapters and that they matter for their lives and that they need to know them, need to know them, not optional, need to know them. And yet most people in the history of the church have not known these chapters. Most people in the church today will never learn these chapters, but you will. You will learn these chapters. Because over the next few weeks, you're going to know them and understand them and learn from them and find joy and hope and power for life change and transformation from Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, which sounds absolutely bonkers. That doesn't make any sense because you read these chapters and you think, okay, there's no way, there's no possible way that A, I can understand anything these chapters are saying, or B, anything in these chapters has any relevance to my life. That's what you would think at first. And the reason people say this is because these chapters are a series of judgments. Judgments against nations, pagan nations, most of whom don't even exist anymore, in the ancient Near East, who hated God, worshipped idols, persecuted Israel, about whom Isaiah writes a bunch of gloomy, spooky judgments of what's coming in the future for them. And at first, that's a really tough sell. There's all supply. There's no demand. No one is asking for a sermon series in Isaiah 13 through 23. And yet, if they actually knew what was in them, maybe they would, because they should. And none of you have asked me for a sermon series on Isaiah 13 through 23, and yet, it's exactly what you're going to get. But here's the thing about these chapters, is that there are things in these chapters 
that unless you know them, you will be missing things that you need for the Christian life. Like seriously. Even if these chapters don't say one thing about your particular struggles directly, they will nevertheless provide the theological infrastructure you need to handle anything in your lives. And that is the essence of practical. Because you understand these oracles, these prophetic judgment oracles written 2,700 years ago, written to nations, some of whom don't even exist anymore, they display five realities about Yahweh that once you hear them, you will agree they are profoundly relevant to your life. This is all still introduction, by the way. Five realities about Yahweh found in Isaiah 13 through 23. They're actually in your notes. In these oracles, we see, one, God is sovereign over the nations. Two, God has a plan for the nations. Three, God will crush the nations that oppose him. Four, God will deliver Israel from the wicked schemes of the nations. And five, God will save his elect out of the nations. Tell me that doesn't matter. Tell me that's not relevant to you. Tell me that doesn't apply to you it does. Those five things are the grand context of what God is doing in the world in and through his son. And you understand your lives are a part of that. In other words, his future victory is your future victory. His future glory is your future joy. Which means what these chapters offer, get this now, is the deepest possible assurance that everything in your lives and in the world is going to be Okay, it's going to be fine. And by fine, I mean it's going to be paradise one day. This morning we get to oracle number one, oracle one of ten. And you can see that I'm calling the oracle the Ballad of Babylon. The Ballad of Babylon, because contained in this oracle is a ballad, a, a song that not only taunts Babylon makes fun of Babylon, but actually predicts the ruin and demise of Babylon, get this, 200 years before it ever even happened. And get this, like all yummy cereals for kids, there's a prize inside the box. What I mean is contained in this oracle, get this, is a prophecy of something that has not even happened yet but will happen at the end of history, which means if you have ears to hear this morning, you, what you will hear will be profoundly helpful to your soul. Supply and demand. Supply and demand. You need it. Isaiah delivers it. Here we go. Here we go. Let's go to the text. This morning, I want you to see from our text four transformative effects. Four transformative effects that the ballad of Babylon should and must have in your life. Four transformative effects that the Ballad of Babylon should and must have in your life. Let's walk through the oracle, which comes in two parts. Let's see first, Oracle 1, Part 1. Oracle 1, Part 1, Babylon will be broken. Babylon will be broken. And yet, to fully appreciate what you're about to see here, we need to take a walk down memory lane. We need to remember how far it is we've come. You remember Isaiah begins chapters 1 through 5 with a prophetic pendulum swing. 
where Isaiah alternates between bad news and good news. And when the news is bad, it is very, very bad. When the news is good, it is really, really good. And the whole point of those chapters is to bring the apostate people of God to their knees in repentance. Here's the wrath that you're going to face if you don't repent. Here is the kingdom paradise that you get to enjoy if you do. But then chapter 6 happened, didn't it? And in chapter 6, we see this new and even disturbing shift in Isaiah's ministry. In chapter 6, Isaiah finds himself in a vision of God at the very throne room where God reveals that Isaiah was going to wake up that next morning and preach to a people who would only respond with opposition. Nobody was going to repent. Nobody was going to believe. Nobody was going to yield in glad-hearted submission to the word of God. Why? Because mystery of mysteries, God would place a blinding curse upon his very own people so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. And then we got to chapters 7 through 12. Remember that? Where there is lurking in the background a geopolitical crisis so devastating in its power that it had the potential to wipe the people of Judah off the face of the planet. You remember, they're staring down the barrel of not just one, but three different hostile nations that wanted to invade them and obliterate them out of existence. And had Yahweh not intervened, they easily could have done so. Which means, which means the subcutaneous question lurking beneath 7 through 12 is, who will you trust? Who will you trust? And the answer that those chapters give is the Messiah. Who would come, who has come, and he will come again. And that issue of trust, get this now, brings us to the very heart of the issue in chapters 13 through 23, because in response to the question, who will you trust? These chapters tell us who you should not trust. Here's who you should not trust. Babylon, chapter 13. Assyria, chapter 14. Moab, chapters 15 and 16. Ethiopia, Damascus, chapter 17, Ethiopia, chapters 18, Egypt, chapters 19 and 20, Arabia, chapter 21, nor should you trust the wealthy and powerful city and kingdom of Tyre, chapter 23. Don't trust them. Don't trust any of them. Don't be like them. Don't align yourselves with them. Don't make deals with them. Don't compromise with them. Don't be like them. Don't envy them. Do not trust them. Because you understand, these are very important chapters, crucial chapters for the people of Judah. Why? Because the allure and the temptation to trust and fear these foreign nations was extremely enticing. They were on the brink of extinction precisely because they had a really bad habit of trusting and fearing foreign powers. So you understand, the entire purpose of chapters 13 through 23 is to free the people of Judah from fearing the nations and to free them from trusting the nations. Again, I think it's appropriate to ask, who do you trust? Who do you fear? Is there anything or anyone in your lives at this moment that is encroaching upon the sacred ground of your soul? An idol, 
something, someone in whom you are placing trust instead of Yahweh alone, these chapters will help you. So that brings us to Oracle 1. Let's start first, and this is in your notes if you've got those, the destruction by Babylon. The destruction by Babylon, verses 1 through 5. Look at the text, 1 through 5. Isaiah writes, the oracle of Babylon, which Isaiah, son of Amotz, saw. Stop right there. Before we go any further, we need to know exactly what an oracle actually is, because that word oracle in Hebrew literally means, get this, a burden. That's what the word means. A burden. Something weighty, something heavy, grievous, even crushing upon the soul. Think, think about the last time you had something really hard and heavy to say to someone. The weight of it almost suffocates, crushes you beneath. That's what this is, because these are about real people with real souls who would be in hell, and many of them are in hell as we speak. You understand, these are heavy sermons to preach. These are heavy sermons to hear. And you notice this first oracle is about Babylon. It's about Babylon, which is an interesting choice to put them first on the list, because guess what? They were not actually the major player of the day. They were not the ancient heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East. They weren't. Assyria was at this time. But they would not always be. Because get this, Isaiah is about to reveal to us, to reveal to his people that a century, even a century before it ever even happened, that Babylon the beast would rise from the east and in a total shock upset victory, they would invade the nation of Assyria and level the city of Nineveh to the ground and take over everything. Nobody could have predicted that. Nobody saw this coming, but Yahweh did because he ordained it and he revealed it to Isaiah and he wrote it down and it's in the text that we're about to see. Verses two through five, here's the message. Not about, but to Babylon. Written to them, look at the text, two through five. Lift up a banner on a barren hill. Lift up a voice to them. Wave the hand and let them, let Babylon enter the doors of the nobles. Yahweh says, I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have called my warriors to execute my anger, my, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a multitude is on the mountains like many people. The sound of an uproar. The kingdoms of nations were gathered. Yahweh of hosts is mustering an army for war. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. Yahweh and the vessels of his indignation to destroy all of the land. It's classic prophetic apocalyptic stuff right there. And the language is hard. Challenging, there's lots of moving parts here, but you can totally tell what this is, is a call to war. It is all the trappings of invasion, conquest, war, brutality, destruction. You can see at verse 2, a banner on a hill. You know what that is? That is a summons to legions and armies and battalions to assemble and march into battle. Verse 3, Yahweh says, I have called my warriors... Verse 4, Yahweh musters an army for war. Verse 5, they will come from a distant land, and they will destroy the land. What land? Well, all of the Middle East, 
but in particular, the land of Judah. See, here's the thing. There, there are two astonishing factors about this that make this call to war all the more profound. Two astonishing factors. Number one, Babylon is the army that Yahweh is gathering for war. Babylon. They will be his divinely chosen instruments, not only to invade and destroy other pagan nations, but to invade and conquer and destroy and enslave even the people of Judah, God's own people, which isn't cruel or unjust at all, at all, because even way back in Deuteronomy 28, he said that that's exactly what he would do if they had broken the covenant and got in bed with idols, and that is exactly what happened can't say he didn't warn him. Notice verse 3, God calls Babylon my consecrated ones, literally my holy ones. He calls them my warriors, my proudly exulting ones to execute my anger. They are mine, he says. They do what I decree. Think, think about this for a moment. Babylon is the army that God summons for war. And that's shocking. And yet if you think about it and you stand back and look at this, that's actually beautiful, isn't it? Not because the destruction they would cause is beautiful, but because this is another one of those countless reminders in the sacred text that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, isn't he? No nation. No nation on earth in the history of the world has sovereign, autonomous, free will to do whatever they please. No, the mystery of history is that all of it is under God's dominion. Every single moment is the divine activity of the Almighty. All of it. There's no accidents. There's nothing random. There's no such thing as chance or luck or karma. No, all there is is the sovereign power and authority of God that governs everything that comes to pass. And you understand the prophets of the past help us interpret the global chaos in the present, don't they? This whole Russia-Ukraine debacle is the wrath and judgment of Yahweh. It's one wicked nation vying for power and domination over another wicked nation. This is the work of God. He is the one who silently summons Iran and their plan to nuke the Jews. China and North Korea do not launch one test missile into the Pacific Ocean unless it has been ordained by God. This is why we need Isaiah 13 and all the oracles. A second factor that makes this beckoning of Babylon all the more astonishing, and I mentioned this earlier, is that Babylon would not become the major world power on the stage of history for another 110 years. Think about that. This is prophetic. The best we could tell, oracle, these oracles were composed about 715 B.C. It would still be over a century before Babylon would rise up, march into Assyria, and level Nineveh to the ground. And it was still 130 years before Babylon would invade and conquer Judah, take a wrecking ball to Jerusalem, and take the people as hostages back into Babylon, into captivity. 
which means all this here was still to come. This was prophecy, and prophecy means sovereignty, and sovereignty means that you and I sleep like a baby at night, or at least we should do that, because we know that nothing happens in the world unless it has been decreed by God. Which brings us next to the day of Yahweh. That was the destruction by Babylon, now the day of Yahweh, verses 6 through 16. And just to warn you, uh, what you're about to see is one of the reasons why biblical prophecy is so maddening and so thrilling all at the same time. You see, the prophets reserve the right to use what I call prophetic wormholes. Prophetic wormholes, you know, the wormhole in space is a bridge, it's a shortcut through space that reduces the travel time between two points. And a wormhole of prophecy functions almost exactly the same way. You see, a prophet will predict one thing to come in the future, and then they will use that very thing to predict, to predict an even further thing to come in even the more distant future. Remember this in chapter 7? Two virgin-born sons were predicted. Two. One prophecy, two virgin-born sons. There was a virgin-born son in Isaiah's day as a sign that God be, could be trusted. And then, yet that virgin-born son was a wormhole that pointed to an even greater virgin-born son to be born later, who would be the Messiah himself. It's exactly what Isaiah is about to do here. One prophecy, two Babylons. Two Babylons. You see, Isaiah predicts, get this now, it's very important. Isaiah predicts that Babylon will arise and dominate the Middle East. That was going to happen. That did happen. But at the same time, he uses Babylon as a wormhole to point to a later, greater Babylon still to come in the future that will dominate the whole planet when it arises. Which means, yes, two Babylons in history. One that would and did already come, one still to come at the end of the age. Do you see where this is going? And this sounds crazy, but it's totally not. It's totally not. The, this, the proof of this wormhole is found in the pudding of the text itself. Look at verses 6 through 9, and just listen. Just notice the change of the language. Notice that the terrors described are not limited only to the land of Judah, but that they are global and cosmic and widespread and cataclysmic cosmic terrors that unfold all over the whole earth. Look at the text. Wail, he says, starting in verse 6, for the day of Yahweh is near. Like the destruction of the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, let all the hands fall limp. Let every heart of man melt, for they will be terrified. And pains and anguishes will seize them like the pains of a woman in labor. Each will turn to his neighbor astonished with faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes cruel and furious in the glow of his anger to appoint the earth as a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from Do you see what Isaiah describes? This is not local, limited only to the land of Judah. No, this is global, total, 
comprehensive terrors even across the entire planet. Every hand will fall limp. Every heart of man will melt. Verse 9, it says Yahweh will make the land a desolation. Do you see that? That word in Hebrew can be land or world, and I think he's talking about the world here. Why? Because verse 11 and 13, he talks about the world. He, he, he will make the world a desolation. He will exterminate sinners from the face of the planet. Look at verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened when it rises. The moon will not bring forth its light. Do you see this? The cosmic terrors and the very thrashing of the cosmos. This did not happen when Babylon invaded in 586 B.C. That's the point. This is classic end times, book of Revelation, apocalyptic imagery yet. This has not yet happened, but it is going to happen. Verse 11, Yahweh says, I will punish what? The world for its evil. I will put an end to the arrogance of man. Verse 12, the holocaust of wrath to come at the end of the age will be so severe that mankind will be more rare than gold. He's describing the near extinction of the human race from the face of the planet, which perfectly squares with Revelation chapter 9, which describes a third, a third of the population being wiped out by the plagues of God's wrath. It's exactly the same thing. Verse 13, therefore, Yahweh says, I will shake the heavens and I will quake, make the earth quake from its place because of the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of the glow of his anger. This is not a 586 invasion BC, ba uh, invasion of Babylon into Jerusalem. Instead, this is a picture of a future time of judgment on the earth known as the day of the Lord. Do you know what the day of the Lord is? This is not a 24-hour day on a clock. This is a time. This is a, that, is a, that is a technical term of prophecy that describes a future time of judgment on the earth, otherwise known as the Great Tribulation itself. I believe in that, you know. And this is everywhere in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible, even in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, destruction suddenly will come upon them. Like a woman with the pains of labor. He's quoting Isaiah 13. And they will not escape. So do you see what Isaiah has just done to you? He just led you through a wormhole, a bridge of biblical prophecy, a shortcut through the space-time continuum. The point is, Isaiah is no longer talking about Babylon 1.0. He is talking about Babylon 2.0, a new revived Babylon still to come at the end of the age. Maybe you're thinking, oh, come on, Jared, seriously? Do you actually believe that? Do you really believe that a new, revived version of Babylon 
is going to arise on the earth and take over the planet and be and un, un, just unleash havoc in the time of the tribulation? Do you actually believe that? That is exactly what I believe. Precisely because that is exactly what Revelation chapters 17 and 18 predict. If you take the text of Revelation at face value, and I do, John portrays in the future a revived version of Babylon that John affectionately calls the whore of Babylon who murders God's people, makes the nations drunk with her immorality. And the text of Revelation is absolutely clear. Babylon 2.0, get this, will be the headquarters for a one-world global government and economy and religion and will slaughter without mercy anyone who does not play by the rules. It'll be the ultimate dystopia, an apocalyptic nightmare, the sum of all fears, just like Babylon was in Isaiah's day, but on a global scale. And the implication is, this is coming in the future. I believe this. It has not happened yet, but it is coming in the future. In all seriousness, without a tin foil hat on my head, Babylon, like Babel of old, will be built back better again. It will. It is coming. This is real. This is certain. Isaiah and Revelation both agree on this. Now, granted, I just want you to know this will be in the tribulation, which means if you're a believer, you will not experience this. And yet at the exact same time, I just want you to know that there are people in global leadership today who want this very thing. They want this one world global thing like Babylon. It's not called Babylon yet. They call it globalization. It's exactly what it is. There are certain people, and you have seen this, people who at this very moment are trying to bring about, wish they could bring about a one-world global government and economy, and if successful, would bring about the kinds of catastrophic devastations that both Isaiah and Revelation describe. But you see, here's, here's the thing. The entire point of the text, why it's there in your Bibles centuries before it ever even happened, is to put the absolute undisputed dominion of God on open display. That's why it's there. And what that does is free us. Doesn't it? This frees us to hold the line and to preach the word and to share the gospel and to kill sin and to suffer hardship and to fight materialism, and to do everything that King Jesus calls us to do, knowing that no matter what we lose or suffer for his sake, even if it's our own lives, we get it all back in the end, plus the kingdom. Do you see? Behold the power of prophecy, not, I repeat, not to tickle our intellectual fancy, nor to satisfy our yearning for conspiracy theories, but rather to free us and liberate us and empower us to be radical, countercultural, nonconformists for the glory of Jesus Christ, no matter the cost to our own lives. Do you see? 
The question is, do you want that? Do you want to be a radical, countercultural, nonconformist for the glory of Christ, no matter the cost to your life? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Which brings us then to the destruction of Babylon by the Medes. The destruction of Babylon by the Medes, verses 17 through 22. You remember, I'm arguing that the entire oracle is actually about less about the success of Babylon and the destruction of Babylon. But the only thing we've seen so far is the destruction caused by Babylon. That's now about to change. You see, God wants us to know that he is the one who raises up kings and rulers and tyrants and nations and cities and realms and wars and invasions and even the entire shifting of civilizations. He does that and that is what he reveals in the text. Look at verses 17 through 19. 17 through 19. Behold, Yahweh says, which is another way of saying get ready for a surprise. Behold, I, Yahweh, am stirring up against Babylon the Medes. That's a people group who do not care about silver, who take no pleasure in gold, but their bows will mow down the young men, and they will not have compassion on the fruit of the womb, on the sons their eye will not look with compassion. Here it is. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of the pride of the Chaldeans will be like the destruction of God at Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you see what Yahweh has done? He's taken us out of the wormhole. And he, out of the apocalyptic, and he brings us back to, apocalypt, to, to Babylon 1.0. 1.0, and reveals 165 years. Get this now, this is incredible. 165 years before it ever happened that the Median Empire would rise on the scene of history, bulldoze the kingdom of Babylon to the ground. This had not happened yet, but it would, and it did. Did you see that in verse 17? I am stirring up the Medes against them, the Medes, the Median army. At this time in history, the Median army was not the major player on the scene of history. They were not. They were like third or fourth in line. But God would raise them up in the future. A mighty and powerful army who would not care for silver or for gold, but instead would be driven by an appetite for destruction. Verse 18, look at the text. The Medes would be merciless and brutal. They would come in guns blazing or arrows flying, as it were, mowing down the, the, the teenagers of Babylon. Verse 18, they would kill babies and children without the slightest hesitation, without the least bit of mercy or compassion. Verse 19, here it is, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms and the splendor of the pride of, of the Chaldeans will be like the destruction of God at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's exactly what happened. A civilization in ruins, in smoke. This is the ruin of Babylon predicted 110 years before Babylon ever even rose to power. I mean, do you, do you see what is happening here? 
God revealed over a century before it happened that he would send Babylon to crush his own people. And then 70 years later, turn right around and send the Medes to crush Babylon for crushing his own people. He would destroy them for doing the very thing that he ordained them to do. Behold then the mystery of sovereignty. The paradox of providence. The dilemma of God's dominion. And much though that might melt the hard drive of our minds and and conflict against human logic, that's a pretty good reason to worship, isn't it? You, You understand, we do not worship a God who merely passively allows things to happen and then simply has to make the best of it. We worship a God who ordains. We worship a God who predetermines. A God who predestines. Who governs and guides and reigns and rules and calls the shots and rules the roost and pulls the strings and governs everything that comes to pass, including every single moment in your life. You understand, the sovereignty of God is the context and the framework by which we make sense of everything happening in history and in life. The fall of Babylon, the murder of Jesus, the day of your birth, the current trials you are undergoing, the day of your death, the very breath you just took, was all ordained by the Almighty. And what that does, that puts a stake in the heart of fear, doesn't it? It has to. The the final nail in the coffin of fear and anxiety is the comprehensive, meticulous, total sovereignty of God over everything. But then quickly... Verses 20 through 22, it seems like, and this is, this is what makes prophecy so challenging, it seems like verses 20 through 22, Yahweh brings, or uh, Isaiah brings us back through the wormhole into the future and portrays for us the destruction, not of Babylon 1.0, but of 2.0. You see there, it says that they'll, verses 20 through 22, they will not be inhabited ever again. They will never be lived in ever again. It goes on to describe wild animals. It'll be in such ruins, a place of such destruction. It'll be fit only for wild animals. It says the shaggy goats will frolic there. I want to see a shaggy goat frolic. Absolute destruction. Desert creatures and jackals howling in abandoned palaces. I mean, you, you see this here, and that sounds really weird, and it is really weird, but the point is one day this revived Babylon dynasty will be obliterated never to rise again. Well, that's funny because that's exactly what Revelation 18 describes. It's exactly what it describes. And the reason why Revelation 18 matters, the reason why the destruction of future Babylon matters is because of what happens in the very next chapter in Revelation 19. What happens in Revelation 19? What happens? You know what it is. You know exactly what it is. It is the victorious, conquering return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords 
who has a sword in his mouth and a fire in his eyes and a rod of iron in his hand and blood on his robe. And he will slaughter the nations and trample them in the winepress of his wrath. And then he will establish his throne and rule the world from Jerusalem. That is the happy ending of God's plan. And what that does is equip us and empower us to face the onslaught of the present, doesn't it? That's hard. This is hard stuff, but it is so good for us. And that's Oracle 1, Part 1, which brings us quickly to Oracle 1, Part 2. Oracle 1, Part 2, which I'm calling Israel will be restored. Israel will be restored. Because here's the thing. The new king of Babylon, both Babylons, both the one to come in 100 years and the one to come at the end of the age, that would have been extremely good news for the Jews. However, without question, the problem rolling around in their minds is, what's to become of us? What will happen to us? I mean, God is going to destroy Babylon, both Babylon's. That much is clear, but that still does not answer the question as to the future of Israel and Judah. Would Yahweh renege on his plan? Would he revoke his promises to Israel? Would he abandon and forfeit the covenants that he had made with his people? What was the future for Israel and Judah? And that is precisely what Yahweh answers in chapter 14. In chapter 14, because although Israel and Judah do not deserve a happy ending, that's exactly what he planned. Look at verses 1 and 2, which I call the deliverance of Israel. The deliverance for Israel, verses 1 and 2. For, for Yahweh will again have compassion on Jacob. And he again will choose Israel. And he will cause them to settle on their land. Do you see this? God is not done with Israel. The best is yet to come for Israel. Notice he, he'll, he'll turn again and have compassion on his people. Even though they committed spiritual adultery, shattered the covenant, played the whore with idols, he would turn to them again and choose them and they would be his people and he would be their God. The plans and purposes of God for Israel were, are still intact. Notice at the end of verse 1, he would bring them into their own land. What is that? That's the Abrahamic covenant. The, the ancient promise that God would give them a land and they'd be a nation and they would have a kingdom, and they would be a channel of blessing to the ends of the earth. Do you see? Every single covenant promise God ever made to the people of Israel will be fulfilled. And the reason why that matters to us, who are not Israel, is because that is the faithfulness of God. Isn't it? And you see, the faithfulness of God is foundational to our own stability into our own sanity, is it not? God is faithful. He will not abandon you. you. You have to understand that if you belong to His Son, the struggles that you face, the pain that you suffer, 
and the dark tunnels through which you must walk are not a sign of God's abandonment of you, but of his love for you as he prepares you to enter the kingdom of his son. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Hang on a little longer, church. God will keep his promises to you. But clearly, clearly, the kingdom in the age to come is not only for Israel, it's also for the nations. Verses 1 and 2, we don't have time to spend a lot of time in it, but it's this moving scene at the end of the ages. Instead of wanting to kill Israel, the nations will want to join Israel in the worship of Yahweh. Verse 2 is this profoundly moving scene. Look at the text where we have the nations personally escorting Israel back to their own promised land. And then when they get there, they turn around and they volunteer to serve them and work for them and minister to them to become servants of the Jews. That's the future for the people of Israel. Totally different than now. That was the future. That is the kingdom that is to come. But then that brings us to what is very easily one of the most bizarre and psychedelic passages in all the Bible. Namely, verses 3 through 23 in chapters in chapter 14. Because get this, chapter 14, verses 3 through 23, you know what it is? It's a taunt. It's a tirade. It's a mocking, satirical speech, a song about the fall of Babylon, and in particular, a king of Babylon. And I think it's future Babylon. 2.0. The book of Revelation, Babylon, at the end of the age. I'm going to pause here, and I'm going to get all uh, theology professor, eschatology professor. I'm going to go eschatology professor on you. The reason why I think what you're about to see is the fall of a future Babylon is because, number one, uh, it is in the context of Israel's own future restoration and salvation. It's in that context, so I think this is future. The second reason why I think this is future is because Revelation describes a future Babylon crashing to the ground. Do you see? I believe, I believe Isaiah 14 is a poetic rendition of Revelation 18. I think it's describing the same event. And just so you know, there, there's tons of debate here. There's all sorts of disagreement, extremely divergent views. One view says that Isaiah 14 is a picture of the fall of Satan. And I understand that. I see where they're coming from. However, however, I think to take it as the fall of Satan forces you to read too much into the text. I think it's way too much to read Satan into these words when you already have the fall of Babylon described in Revelation 17 and 18. I think they're describing the same event. So, and here's the other thing. Revelation 19, if you look at it, is after the ruin of Babylon is a song of celebration. Here, after the ruin of Babylon is a song of celebration. At the end of the day, I think it's best to see the king here of Babylon as representative of the kingdom of Babylon, which makes sense, right? Because Babylon in Revelation 18 is pictured as a harlot. Babylon here is pictured as a king. So put it all together. What do you have here in chapter 14? Here's what you've got. Chapter 14, it is a song that mocks the crushing defeat of a future harlot kingdom at the end of the age. Are you with me? This is hard. This is hard stuff. We've got to preach it. 
The song is long. We're going to have to do it in double time. Here we go. First, we see the king's death. The king's death. Look at verses 3 through 8. This is going to go fast. Buckle up. The king's death. In that day, verse 3, Yahweh will provide rest for his people Israel. Do you see that there, verse 3? And he will do so precisely because Babylon, future Babylon, will be destroyed. Verse 4, in that day, God says, you, in that day you will take up this taunt. When Babylon falls, you will mock Babylon, the king of Babylon, and you will say how the oppressor has ceased, how the fury has ceased. Verse 5, notice, using the past tense, but speaking of the future, describes Yahweh shattering the staff of the wicked and the scepter of kings. What is that? That is a poetic description of the ruin of Babylon. Verse 6, speaking of Babylon, they used to strike the peoples in fury. They, they used to subdue the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. That is what future Babylon will do. But after they are destroyed, after they are annihilated, look at verse 7. The earth will be quiet and at rest. They will break forth in shouts of joy. This is exactly what we see in Revelation 18 and 19. After Babylon is leveled to the ground, songs of celebration resound from the people of God. That's what this is. Verse 9. Or actually, now that brings us to the king's descent. The king's descent, verses 9 through 11. Here again, it just gets weirder. It gets more psychedelic. Here, Isaiah portrays the nightmarish, almost horror film-like account of Babylon's descent into Sheol, into the realm of the dead. Look at verse 9. Isaiah personifies Sheol as a playful, eager monster with an insatiable appetite that trembles with joy at Babylon's arrival. Verses 9 through 11, wicked kings in Sheol, they stand on their feet like a bunch of inmates in prison, shriek and howl as Babylon does the walk of shame through the corridors of the dead. In giddy surprise, verses 10 through 11, they cry out, even you have become like us. You have become like one of us. Your pride and the sound of your harps was brought down to Sheol. Under you will be a bed of maggots and your covering will be worms. Welcome to our world, they say. And then finally, the king's disgrace, verses 12 through 23. The king's disgrace. And here's why people think that this is about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You who broke the earth in pieces, you who weakened the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens above. To the stars of God, I will raise up my throne. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the highest places of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol, to the deepest parts of the pit. I know, I know that we are conditioned to read Satan into this, but actually Isaiah uses ancient Near Eastern mythology here. He, he quotes ancient pagan myths and uses the language of that to describe, the, the, to poetically portray the obliteration of this king, or better, the kingdom of Babylon. Then verses 22 through 23, look at the end. Yahweh has the final word. I will rise up against them. Notice it's plural. I will rise up against them. 
Babylon, and cut off from them the name and survivors, offspring and posterity. I will make it a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares Yahweh of hosts. And there's the end of the song. The ballad is over. The question is, what do we do with that? It's in the text. It's equally as inspired as Romans chapter 8. What do we do with Isaiah 14, and the ballad of Babylon, and a psychedelic song of end times events. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. There are four, and these are very fast, trust me on this, four effects of the ballad of Babylon. You ready? Here they go. Number one. Effect number one. This ballad of Babylon is given to you to provoke trust in Yahweh alone. Trust in Yahweh alone. I mean, in a day and age where we grow more passionate for our nation, and we try to hold together the few sane values that we have left, it is very easy to transfer deserved trust from Yahweh onto a party or a candidate. This oracle guards you against that. We must fight to make sure that our patriotism does not supersede zealous trust and hope and the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ who holds the universe into being by the word of his power. Effect number two. The ballad of Babylon is in our Bibles to prevent fear. To prevent fear. In other words, this taunt song of what will be the worst Tyranny in the history of the world is but a graphic to re reminder to Judah and to us that even the greatest of kings and, and tyrants and nations in history are nothing more than maggot food and a meal for the worms, and we do not fear worms. Effect number three. The Ballad of Babylon promotes mission and gospel proclamation. This promotes mission and gospel proclamation. This empowers you to preach the gospel. How does it do that? Well, everybody's concerned about the future. Everybody's concerned about the end of the world. 75% of it thinks that it's going to go out of existence through global warming. You know the truth. You know the future from the sacred text. I'm serious. And you knowing the text, you knowing the end, empowers you as a witness of hope in a world of despair. Don't just stop at a gospel that talks about forgiveness of sins. That is true. You must go further than that, and you must bring it all the way to the king who will make all things right when he arrives. Effect number four. And then we're done. The ballad of Babylon persuades, should persuade unbelievers to repent and yield to Jesus Christ. It should do that. Which if you have not done so, if you have not yielded to Jesus Christ today, I'm asking you to reconsider your position. Because if you have not done so, if you have not yielded to Christ, if you are still in a Babylonian-like rebellion against the God of the universe, today is the day to rethink your position. You see, the choice is yours. No one can make this decision for you. It will not end for the future kingdom of Babylon, and it will not end for those who become like them.
You see, you can have Christ today as a lamb, or you can have him tomorrow as a lion that slaughters. You can dive today into an ocean of reconciling blood, or you can be plunged tomorrow into a lake that is filled with fire. You can resist, you can rebel, you can reject, you can refuse the grace that is offered to sinners lost and ruined by the fall, but I have a much better idea. You can repent and relent and yield to the king in whose presence is fullness of joy and in whose right hand there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is hard, and you inspired hard texts too. And Lord, maybe we don't see the immediate relevance of everything here, and that's okay, Lord, in due time. Lord, help us to trust. Help us to not fear. Help us to proclaim and help those, cause those in this room who do not know you to repent and relent and yield themselves to you. Thank you for the power of your word. We're grateful for this time together. In Christ's mighty name we pray.